And the dialogue is, you are a part of me. You're an aspect of me, right? And as such, you want something for me. What is it that you want for me? And what is it that you want from me? Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Evolving Earth Podcast, where we speak to creators, entrepreneurs, and visionaries who are creating the world we want to live in. I'm your host, Will Sachs. Welcome back. Let's begin. Hi, friends. Welcome back to Evolving Earth. So we're moving onwards in our series on psychedelic healing. I've learned so much in this series. I've been going on for a year now, and I'm, I'm not getting tired. We've got some incredible guests lined up. I feel like my knowledge of healing and health and mental health are all deepening in fascinating ways as we get deeper into this series. And today, I am excited to welcome Dr. David Tusek as my guest on the show. Dr. Tusek is a visionary doctor, entrepreneur, and health pioneer. Uh, he's a recognized leader in healthcare transformation, and he's someone working on the front lines of the healthcare system to create new models that work better, that result in better outcomes, that are more people-focused. It's really beautiful what he's created. He's the founder of Cloud Medical here in Colorado, a direct primary care practice for high-performance individuals. And what they've created at Cloud is a new model of healthcare based around relationships with your doctor and taking a functional medicine approach. Dr. Tusex, the only doctor to ever ask me if I had considered using psychedelics to help with depression. So he takes this holistic lens, and I'm excited to talk with him about his vision of how healthcare could be organized in this country and how psychedelic medicines would fit into that model. A little bit more on Dr. Tusex. So Dave founded one of the nation's first direct primary care programs, which he sold in 2016. Uh, then he went on to found and launch Cloud Medical here in Colorado. He's also the founder of Ravel. And Ravel is a new kind of healthcare marketplace that operates in very different ways than the traditional healthcare insurance marketplaces. Uh, Ravel is focused around supporting and nurturing health and well-being versus providing sick care, being economical instead of being astronomically expensive and self-terminating like the current model, being customizable to your specific unique needs, and identifying world-class performers in every single field so that each of us can create our own healthcare team that consists of the top people in each of the areas where we're looking for support in terms of our health and well-being. So it's a beautiful vision, Ravel. We'll link in the show notes. Check it out. Dr. T is also the founder of Cloud Collective, which is a community of physician activists, innovators, biohackers, entrepreneurs, paradigm shifters, and co-creators of a new vision of health. Dr. Tusek is also a previous member of the steering committee of the Direct Primary Care Coalition in Washington, D.C. He was previously invited to the White House to discuss the future of American medicine and named among the top doctors in concierge medicine. He's spent his career working on creating a new health paradigm for America and a model for the rest of the world. And lastly, he's a qualifier for the Ironman Triathlon World Championships in Kona, Hawaii. So Dr. T is an exceptionally visionary human here to talk to us about how psychedelic medicine fits into healthcare and how we can think about health in general 
uh, and a healthcare system that works for everybody. So please welcome Dr. David Tusek to the show and hope you enjoy this interview. Hey friends, this episode is brought to you by Fundraising Mastery, which is our accelerator program that we run a few times a year for mission-driven entrepreneurs to help them raise money. So we set a goal for this cohort to enroll at least 50% founders of color. So if you know anybody who might be a good fit or somebody who's creating something and they're raising money, please refer them to foundersgetfunded.com and uh, we'll do a call with them and see if it's a match. Our goal is to help 100 entrepreneurs get funded over the next year. So we're accelerating the program right now. And the reason this is important to me, especially with what's going on, globally is, you know, we look at the world and we think about what are the solutions. And I believe that a big part of those solutions are going to be created by entrepreneurs. People are going to have ideas for how to make the world better. And then they're going to go out and create organizations and companies that help to enact that change. And I love that power of entrepreneurship and I want to help it flourish. So again, that's foundersgetfunded.com. If you know anybody who might be able to benefit from the program, please send them there. Many thanks. All right, Dr. Dave Tusek, welcome to Evolving Earth. Hey, Will. Great to be here with you, man. I want to just open off straight with this question. As a doctor, you know, what is your conception of healthcare and how do psychedelics fit into that or not fit into that? Yeah, so let me try to step into this question. I would say that after 20 years of being a practicing physician, uh, being a family doctor, ER doctor, working in hospitals, clinics, nursing homes, ERs, you know, I am on this journey of trying to understand what, what health and healing is all about, to be completely humble. <laughs> and, you know, our system is based not actually our healthcare system is not based on any kind of a deep grasp of health and healing. It's actually based on the treatment of, of illness and treatment of disease. So everything that I learned in medical school and most of what I learned in residency was based on this idea of pathogenesis, right? What causes illness? And while that is so rich and it's given us just an unbelievable amount of, of truly a magical and miraculous tools to help decrease suffering on the planet. I think now is the time to begin to complement our understanding of disease with a, a deeper understanding of actually what it means to be healthy, what it means to be in the process of health, healthfulness, well-being, and what it means to heal right on the various levels. And so for me, exploring that question I would say that, you know, my current definition of health and healing has to do with reconnecting with the four realities of life that we are often disconnected from. And so the first is the body. And many of us, you know, when I talk to people, how's your digestion? They're like, I don't know. I never think about digestion. Like, I think it's okay. You know, or how do you feel in your core? And they're like, you mean my six pack, my abs? I'm like, no, man, your, your core is, you know, that which connects your upper body to your lower body <laughs> or just the sense of 
being in tune, being in connection with the sort of 40 trillion mortal cells that make up, right? This corpus that we inhabit for our lives. And so there's much to be said about exploring that connection in more detail. And I'm, and I'm happy to, to do that. But we'll kind of go around the, the four aspects, you know. So the body is the first. The second is to connect with our interiors, right? To connect with our deepest self, our highest truth, our, you know, big I, our sense of oneness with all of the aspects of reality, our, our Atman. I mean, there's so many names for this, obviously. And in the Western tradition, we reference things like our emotional states and our consciousness and our mood and things like that. And so it has underpinnings that are very much in the here and now sort of ego based. And then there's other ways of entering higher states of consciousness besides just the gross state. And I think this is one area where the psychedelics can be extremely useful, important, rich, nourishing, nurturing, a wonderful portal of entry. And so I believe that this is a time when we're revisiting, re-encountering, and re-encountering particularly in the setting of health and healing, but in other ways as well, this idea of plant medicine and even some of the synthetic molecules that can help us access those different states of consciousness. So that's the second reconnection in our journey of healing that I think is important. The third is our relationship to one another, our connection to the collective, both one-on-one and in, in larger groups. And then our, the fourth is our uh, relationship uh, with nature itself, right? How we view the natural world kind of in a, in a large sense, in a, in a view from 30,000 feet. So not just you know, do I take my shoes off and ground myself in the grass with bare feet? And not just do I actually take the time to put my hands in the water, the stream to really feel connected to the the vitality of nature, but even just our relationship on a systemic level to the natural world, right? The way that we utilize resources, the way that we have set up our societies, our economies, things like that. And are we tending to Mother Earth? You know, there's so many beautiful ways of thinking about that. You know, Charles Eisenstein talks about reframing that relationship from Mother Earth, which is a very kind of one-sided, constantly taking from approach, right, to Lover Earth, where we're in a mutual relationship Mm. with the planet, where we're actually in a relationship that includes the taking care of, you know. Right, because the Mother Earth is like a giving of nurture to us. That's right. Whereas the Lover Earth is a is a back and forth relationship of yeah. of ongoing development, trust, respect. Totally. I love that. You know, you mentioned I mean you started with the question about psychedelics. So I mean one of the most powerful stories that I've ever heard from one of my teachers was he was in ceremony in Peru. And he was there very much eager to reconnect to Mother Earth, right? And after he took the medicine, he felt 
a very, very powerful kind of this overwhelming sense of being enveloped by this this very feminine form of the natural world, right? Just embracing him deeply. But then it became dark, became very, very sort of foreboding. The presence became very intense. And it actually yelled down at him and it said, quit sucking on my teat. Stand up and be a man. Quit taking from me like a little baby, this one-sided way. And actually stand up and be a man and be in relationship with me. You know, and he was like, whoa. Mm. And I think it's a beautiful metaphor for us to sort of stand up together and and take care of the natural world. And obviously, we can talk about all the ways in which we're plundering it and we're extracting from it in ways that toxifies the planet and doesn't do it in a regenerative fashion and is depleting our oceans, our forests, polluting our rivers and, and all of our waterways and the air and the soil and all of that. So I think when we go back to your question about, you know, what is health, I think reconnecting in these four ways is a critical lens through which to view it. And using the plant medicine or other forms of psychedelics as a, as a conduit or a catalyst to enhance that connectivity is worthwhile and relevant and, and important for sure. Yeah. It's, I, I don't know if you know this, but I was having a rough go of it a few years ago and we had a conversation and and I was asking you, I was like, what about ayahuasca? Mm-hmm. Or, or you might've brought it up actually. I might not even asked. You might've said like, well, have you tried ayahuasca mm-hmm. just to kind of plant the seed for me? Mm-hmm. And so I went down to Peru in October of last year mm-hmm. and had an incredible experience, five ceremonies over 11 days and felt myself reconnect to my body and to nature. And Mm -hmm. it has been a shift for me Mm -hmm. in terms of turning the corner on leaving Kandara and having, you know, dealing with all of that baggage and and stepping into, into what's next for me. So I guess I want to say thank you for that. Hmm. First of all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would love to hear more about that. Perhaps we can do that offline, but I'm so glad that that was good for you, man. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was awesome. And I'd love to go back maybe in a year or so, or so. And I went down with the Western mindset that I've talked about before on this show of, I'm going to go to Peru. I'm going to be healed. I'm going to come back and everything, you know, all my shit's going to be dealt with. Totally. And I really got the message of, of patience down there and that connecting with my body and and my atman and and with the planet and with others is an ongoing process of peeling the onion that's going to go on for my entire life. Oh yeah. And so there was like some impatience there for me, but also like a relaxation into, Mm. okay, I've stepped on a path that I'm going to hopefully be walking Mm. as long as I'm here. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. I think, I think you hit on, two of the sort of core ways to reconnect in these in these four dimensions and the first is is that you know we need to show up kind of in that masculine manner that allows us to to have the discipline and to have the ritual and the routine and the commitment and uh, you know the real clear intention and the real clear claim that this is what i want in my life that that is necessary it's important for me 
And then to balance that out with a total sense of surrender, a total sense of understanding that there is an evolutionary process that takes time, right? And to actually, I believe, enter the higher realms of our connectivity with our own health, with our own state of being on all the different levels that are available and accessible to us requires a tremendous amount of of relaxing into it. You know, you bring up a, a very poignant lesson that I had. So one of the things that we do at Cloud Medical is, you know, we try to bring in teachers from all kinds of different aspects and elements of of sourcing or optimizing health, right? And one of the most interesting ones, if we speak particularly about the body part of it, you know, the physiology, the health of our immune system, for instance, that I've come across over the last few years by far is the Wim Hof method. Hmm. Absolutely remarkable, you know, uh, system of developing the ability to optimize, to control, to modulate our immune system using extreme cold immersion, right? Breath work, meditation, intention, but the cold immersion is the biggest part of it. And so at one of our offices at the city club, which you've been to last year, we, we asked um, this wonderful Wim Hof teacher. She's, I was like, what's the top, who's the top Wim Hof teacher in the country. And uh, this woman's name came up, Elizabeth Lee. Her name is E. Lee. She goes by E. Lee. And she came to the garden in front of our office at the city club. And she brought 2000 pounds of ice. and a little tub and there was about 30 or 40 of us that uh, participated in this and i will never forget man like after all the prep work and the breath work to get us ready to do this this is the first time i'd ever done it and i'm not talking like chilly taking a cold shower i'm talking an ice bath at 32.0 degrees up to your neck right immersed and it's a two-minute process and you know i first entered that with very much this sort of masculine energy because you have to you have to psych yourself up you have to kind of gain the courage and the intention i'm going to get in there i got in there man and you could see the seconds ticking by like this (laughs) you know and time just sort of expanded (laughs) i'm like i'm like 45 seconds in i don't think i can do this I'm like 50 seconds in, every cell in my body is screaming, get the F out of here, you know? And I'm like, and Ely could see my reaction. And she just walked up to me, man. And she whispered in my ear and she's like, Dave, you can't beat this. You have to surrender. You have to stop resisting, bro. And at that moment, it just clicked. And in the midst of this freak out, freezing cold reaction, I just told my body, I'm like, okay, dude, just stop fighting and allow the cold to come in. Stop trying to resist it. Surrender to it. And it was the most amazing, like that by far was the part of the experience that was the most extraordinary because it allowed me to step into a different part of my being, you know, a different part of my consciousness where there's no fear, right? It cannot die, cannot be killed. It's infinite and it's eternal. And in that space, you can let these things happen and actually benefit from them on on an intensely physiologic basis. 
So this idea that you bring up of, you know, surrendering to it, not rushing it, allowing it to unfold, bringing it into the, into the, your life and into your body, both from a warrior spirit of commitment, but also the capacity to release and to relax into it, I think is, is absolutely fundamental. And we, when we see these, these aspects of physical health, right? I see them more and more as a kind of oscillation between polarities, right? And so you can't stay in that ice bath forever. Eventually, you have to rewarm your body. You can't go into a fasting state forever. Eventually, you have to refeed your body, right? You can't do high-intensity intervals forever. You have to eventually rest your body. And same thing with oxygen states, you know, high oxygen states, very, very low oxygen states, temperature, food, uh, breath, all of this stuff. We become more and more resilient and anti-fragile, you know, even more than resilient. We actually use those stressors to become stronger, to become, to have a greater capacity in our own health, to have a greater ability to resist diseases and illnesses through strengthening our immune system exactly by oscillating between these polarities so it's fascinating and then when you look at the interiors you know that second aspect of reconnecting to our state of being i find it's very much the same thing because here we we have to reconnect to that part of ourselves on a psycho-spiritual basis that's as uncomfortable as that freaking ice bath right Mm. and if we enable or allow or invite the connection with that that we fear the most or that we're most insecure about or the thing that has scarred us the most or traumatized us the most the stuff that we don't even want to think about, man. Like we would rather sort of hide and bury, you know? Denial. Hey, absolutely. We talked about that a lot on the show. Absolutely. Yeah, and for me, I, one day I realized, I think Katie said to me that denial is the first step of the healing process because it protects us from things we can't deal with until we can, oh. until we have the capacity. Well, that's a beautiful thing. And, and it's a beautiful thing to say. And I, and I, I can't resonate with that more strongly you know are you familiar with martin martin prechtel the shamanic teacher no man you should youtube his video oh we can upload the link for people but if you haven't heard this man speak i mean he he's a gift and he does a talk called grief and praise grief and praise and he talks about the fact that they're the same thing, they're equally important, equally critical aspects of love, right? And so that as we look at the world of form, everything in it, ourselves, all of our loved ones, this table, our house, the flat irons outside, the entire world of form is in the process of dissolution, right? Eventually, none of this right. will be here. And so all of these things that we are connected to and, and do have a loving relationship with, there's an aspect of profound grief there, of that loss, knowing that it's impermanent. 
And yet we can praise it and celebrate it while we're here to enjoy it, right? And the talk is so important for us to hear because, you know, one of the things he mentions from his shamanic tradition, looking at the Western society at large, is, man, you guys don't know how to grieve well, right? Yeah. And so when Katie mentioned denial, well, guess what? That's the first stage of grief, right? And in order to grieve well, when we look at just from the Western tradition, the the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross progression of the grieving process, you know, denial has its place. Anger. Are you kidding me? Like, you know, before we started recording, I was telling you about the amazingly rich conversations we've been having at my house where my poor daughter is back from college, you know, and she's 20 and she is very much tapped into what's happening, you know, on a planetary level. Man, let me tell you, there's some profound anger, right? And it's appropriate. And I, and I, and I think it's beautiful, but you don't want to get stuck there forever, right? So you want to continue to progress and eventually reclaim some of that power that we lose if we're in a constant state of denial or a constant state of anger. And we eventually continue this healing process so we can come out to the other side of, of a mature acceptance, not an acceptance that says, well, that's the status quo. That's business as usual. That's the way the world works. It's like, hell no. We got a lot of work to do in this world, right? We got a lot of things that need to be approached from a different resonance frequency, right? And in order to do that, we can't be vibrating from the resonance frequency of, of denial or anger. So that's what I mean is coming back and saying, I'm going to go into this place of discomfort. I'm going to go face some of these aspects, you know, not just starting by like, this is what I find, you know, many of us, and I I certainly have, have fallen to this trap. You know, you look around and you see the world is so fucked up in all these different ways. And so what are all the ways that needs to be fixed? And, you know, the path of the sage says, well, let's first figure out what is, in your own sewer right (laughs) let's begin to clean up that (laughs) process first so that we can go and progress from these states of of denying that there's anything wrong denying that there's this egoic monkey mind that's churning it's nonsense 24 7 and actually saying well no i'm not going to deny that anymore i'm going to face that i'm going to see what is dark and ugly down there but it takes a tremendous amount of courage and then just like with the water, the, the cold water immersion or the ice bath, we need both the ability to face it with courage and truth, but then surrender to it in a form of healing love and, and hmm. releasing that resistance. So this is the way in which our dragons reveal their gift, right? And the more intense that reactivity is, that resistance, that, ah, oh, that's so painful. I don't want to see it. I don't want to witness that part of myself. The more powerful that reaction is, if we actually do have the courage to see it and come into relationship with it, wow, the more we get our life back, man. 
the more our heart breaks open, the more wisdom is ushered forth, the more realness, the more truth comes through, right, through us. And so such a beautiful and important part of of our healing journey that, again, plant medicine can play a just a foundational role. Yeah, that's been my experience. I did breathwork on the weekend. I, I just started a six-month breathwork training, and so I'm going to be breathing on the reg. And one of the things I got in this last session was that my truth is underneath my pain. Yeah. Like that just came to me. I just felt that. And I was wailing, like in the breathwork, crying, yeah. wailing, and then came out of the session and felt more in my body. Like that, yeah. the sewer had been you know, like yeah. a little skim off the top of the sewer every time is what it's felt like over the last year and a half as I've gotten into this psychedelic healing, mm. different modalities. So good. And then I actually, it feels harder on, in some ways to be in the world, in our culture, as a more heart-open individual. Mm. That's my experience is it's easier to be closed mm. on some, in some way and be out in the world mm. and be amongst other people that are closed. And then as I've felt this process of opening and my heart opening and feeling more and being brought to tears more mm -hmm. in situations where... I previously never would have been brought to tears. It's, there's like some element of feeling like more vulnerable, ah. I guess is what it is. Mm. Beautiful. So I guess my question is, what are your thoughts on that? And, and like, I, we have a culture that is shifting, but has a long way to go. It feels like to me. Yeah. That vulnerability that you speak of is, is so real and so true and so beautiful. And it, and it is the way you know it is through that vulnerability and it's actually really cool i think our culture is shifting on this very much so and so you have people that have caught the mainstream vibe right people like Brene brown she's like you know downloaded 10 million times and she's representing an important aspect of the psychotherapeutic tradition or field you know and and kind of the mainstream way that we approach uh, mental wellness and mental health. And she speaks about the importance of it's actually through, it's not skirting around our vulnerabilities, right? <laughs> bypassing them. No, it's directly facing, going through them as through a portal that we find our strength, right? And so listening to you speak about that experience, yeah, man, you just, you connect with what is most real and what is most true for you through not hiding from in any kind of fear, shame, but owning and accepting that vulnerability and allowing it to bring wisdom, bring its wisdom to you. Like, why? Why is it there? You know, and having this almost dialogue with these aspects of ourselves. You know, and there's so many immensely powerful new tools, and we call them psycho-spiritual technologies, that really build upon the foundation of many, many years, many decades of, on the one hand, integrating Eastern and Western traditions of examining and exploring the interiors, but actually coming up with something that is very original and unique and very new, right? And some of the basis comes from 
the early foundational elements of things like NLP and EMDR and the EFTs and the tapping technologies. And now Stephen Porges' amazing work with the polyvagal response. And some of the tools that I have had the, I would say, immense like like gift, the immense honor to participate in and to, to have them experience them for myself as well as for for many of our patients where there is a direct dialogue with those aspects that are our deepest darkest vulnerabilities and the dialogue is you are a part of me you're an aspect of me right and as such you want something for me what is it that you want for me and what is it that you want from me And as we drop into deeper and deeper and higher and higher resonances around these profound questions in dialogue with our fears and vulnerabilities and shames and guilts and so on and so forth, we actually are able to come into a very direct and very impactful and very beautiful connection with our highest self and our deepest truth. And man, for me, I mean, that's healing, bro. Like that's some of the most important aspects of becoming healthy on this journey of health and well-being. You know, we can talk about, you know, going to the gym and eating the right food and all of that's critical. And, you know, we take that very, very seriously, cloud, obviously, but we can't neglect some of these interiors that we're talking about. And back to your question about culture, you know, so that's the third aspect is the health of the collective, right? The health of the culture, the interiors of the culture. And what does that mean? And, and how do I relate when, you know, so many of the media channels have made us more alienated, more alone, more fragmented, disassociated, disconnected, right? So when we look at what's happening, you know, Sure, we have a COVID pandemic, but a lot of times people forget it's like we have multiple simultaneous pandemics that have been happening for a long time, long before COVID, right? We have the yeah, opioids is what comes to mind to me. Opioid is, is racism. I mean, racism, you could call a pandemic, right? Yeah, absolutely. Sexism, so, so violence, all of that, you know, so the opiate epidemic, which is very real, you know, before covid every seven seconds somebody died of an opiate overdose in america now that doesn't even include alcohol or other drugs that's just opiates right people like john verveke have pointed out the meaning crisis which is also an epidemic the sense of well i don't know how my life has any meaning or any purpose I'm not feeling connected to anything that actually has any meaning. There's an epidemic of nihilism, right? That's very real. And it, it certainly is leading or fueling or propagating the increase in depression, the increase in anxiety, the increase in suicide rates, right? So that's a very, very real crisis. And even people like Thomas Hubel are, you know, pointing out the collective trauma right? The ancestral collective trauma that is part of that meaning crisis where we're 
really struggling to make sense of the world. And we do need these different tools, you know, and, and we can't continue to be more and more and more disconnected from one another. We actually have to figure out how to reconnect more deeply so that just like with the ice bath and just like with the facing our demons on the interiors, so that in this third way, we can actually become the golden mirror for one another, right? The most beautiful gift, the most beautiful act of service for a loved one, for a friend, is to be a golden mirror for them, to reflect what you see that actually still needs more healing or still needs more work or more, you know, waking up, growing up, cleaning up, showing up, whatever is required, but from a place not of garrison and criticism, right? But from a place of love, from a place of I am with you and I am for you. But this is what I see, okay? This is what I see. And I mean, that is the kind of being in attunement and being in relation with one another that, again, we don't have the fucking tools for this, right? Or or we, we do have the tools, but they're very they're not often used, right? They're becoming, they're only coming online for us to really begin to sort them out. And, you know, I believe that the man and the woman of the future, you know, this is going to be part of the deal. This is one of my favorite quotes is in the future, the hospital, the school and the monastery will be one place so that we learn about health, the education it's like temple, the, Temple is the word that comes to yes, me. Yes, yes. And this educational process of, well, how do we actually support and nurture and nourish a very strong and anti-fragile body, as well as the psycho-spiritual interiors? How do we tend to those and tune those? And then how do we you know, use those skills now to relate to one another in a much more mature, in a much more uh, helpful way? where we are part of one another's journeys of evolution, right? We're actually participants in one another's evolutionary process. Like how fucking beautiful is that to have that type of a relationship with one another? And so, so I think, you know, in many ways, like, gosh, how lucky are we that we get to live in a place like Boulder where we're actually a lot of people are interested in, in this. You know, I'm very aware and I actually have a very strong aversion and a very strong kind of bullshit detector around the way that we sometimes, you know, use these things in a new agey or a utopian or kind of a pie in the sky, Pollyannish spiritual bypassing manner, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about very pragmatic, boots on the ground, practical integrated, sustainable ways in which we can uh, bring these into our culture. And, you know, that's where my passion lies is in helping to look at ways in where the healthcare system of the future is a full stack embodiment of all of these tools, of of all these technologies, these techniques, so that we can uh, come back to this state of wholeness, right? It's not just about making our immune system strong like that's part of it but that's not all like we have to do the whole package the right? whole package yeah yeah that's yeah. so, yeah, what i believe yeah that wonderful I, it's a beautiful segue into uh something we were talking about before uh, we hit record 
Uh, you've introduced me to a few new words, praxis, salutogenesis, eudaimonics. Yeah. Do you want to give an overview of, yeah. of this model and, and how you're working in, inside of it? Yeah. So, yeah, for whatever reason, you know, I have this thing about resurrecting dead words, apparently. And so, um, and so when I map onto, this is the way I think about it, you know, in a, in a very humble way, my question is, can I tune in to what the world needs, to what is trying to be born? And then what is my minuscule, miniature, teeny tiny role in that so that I can be of service to it right? and in the highest good? And when I tune into that, these two words really hold a lot of weight and value for me. So salutogenesis is an old word uh, that was coined by a, a researcher and a psychologist main, named Antonovsky back in the 40s and 50s, who was studying the recovery of Holocaust survivors and their reintegration into what we might call normal society. Wow. And you know what he found was that the majority of Holocaust survivors could not do that in any way that was measurable. But he found that about 20 or 25% of them were. They, they seemed to have, you know, very healthy families, normal lives. And he's like, those are the people I want to study. What is different about this group of what people? What are they doing? Yeah. Right, than the other 75 or 80%, right? And so it's the beautiful counterpart to our understanding of pathogenesis, right? So when I look at the healthcare system from the perspective of grief and praise, we talked about earlier, I praise the massive amounts of, again, magical, miraculous cures. I mean, I initially was on the path to becoming a liver transplant surgeon. Like we can take out someone's liver who is dying, who's not going to make it for another year. And because of, you know, hepatitis induced cirrhosis, we can remove that liver, transplant a liver from somebody who passed away from a motorcycle accident. And the guy can live for 20 years or longer, you know, decades of life. Like that's, that's unbelievable to me, right? Yeah. It's unbelievable to me that we are now creating genetic therapies for diseases that we had absolutely no way of helping with, right? It's unbelievable to me that we have all of these amazing tools. And as a physician, I'm just like, I'm in awe of the shoulders of giants that we get to stand on that give us actually the tools to use, the therapeutic tools that we can use in our clinics and our offices and our hospitals, right? But I grieve for the ways in which our system is unethical and insane, right? So there are many ways in which the healthcare system is literally insane and unethical. And I refer to that as my 10 existential crises, or you can call them the 10 heartbreaks of my career, right? Where I've begun to awaken. They didn't all happen at once. They were kind of sequential, successive, like, oh my God, like, whoa. You know, the first one is the U.S. healthcare system is the third leading cause of death in America, right? Now, 
So we do a lot of things that are really great, and we can't forget about that. But we also can't deny or neglect or ignore, right? Come on. Like, whoa, what is going on? And It almost doesn't compute. Like, I've heard you, you know, we've talked about this before, but just letting that sink in. Letting that sink in. It, and then letting the second one sink in. We're the number one cause of bankruptcy. And most of the people who go bankrupt in this country from healthcare bills have insurance, right? So, wow, you know, the third is the way that we are profiting from the system. So there's, again, absolutely no judgment, right, of what other doctors do or don't do. That's not my intent at all. I'm, I'm not trying to elevate myself to any any place over anyone else. What I see doesn't feel clean to me. It doesn't feel pure to me. The karma is not good between a doctor who sells things to his or her patients for profit. There's a conflict of interest, right? Doesn't make sense to me. And so at Cloud, you know, it's a membership model that tries to address those first two existential crises, right? The first thing is, we are half the cost for most people of the crappiest Kaiser plan on the exchange. And that's unlimited visits, no copays, 24 seven access. I say it's, it's a healthcare plan independent of time and space, right? Doesn't matter where you are on the planet or what time it is. We're here for you. We're connected with you via all of our various apps and mobile technologies as well as face to face, right? And we do that including the major medical component, so the hospital and the surgeries and the cancer care uh, coverage, at half the cost of most other plans. So we're trying to ethically create a practice that is much more financially sustainable. And then from the perspective of doing no harm, like how can you say if you're the third leading cause of death that you're upholding the Hippocratic Oath? It's like <laughs> that you're well, that's doing not no harm. computing. Yeah. Or at all. No. And so, you know, part of that is our drug-based model, as we all know, right? It's it's uh, very much focused on the only tool in the toolbox is are the synthetic pharmacological therapies, right? But in fact, there are many other tools in the toolbox that we need to cultivate, curate. And so that's what we're very much doing as part of functional medicine paradigm. Uh, so the way that we profit, we don't we don't mark anything up, you know, so we don't if there's supplements that we have or medications that we have, we have the best brands and the best lines of supplements. We don't make money selling them. We do that at cost or, or at no profit at a, at a break even, you know, we don't have to list all 10 of them, but you know, I'll give you the fourth one and then we can move on to really what salutogenesis is all about. The fourth one is the way that we hold power. Right. And so I believe that is fundamentally our most important job as physicians to help our patients uncover their own power, right? To help empower them, to help them recognize their own innate healing potential. And unfortunately, the common conventional mainstream allopathic Western paradigm, you know, it won't have any of that, right? It says, no, right, I'm the it's doctor. Like the doctor knows best. That's right. Yeah. I'm the doctor. I have the prescription. 
you come in in a month and I'll write out another prescription for you. And it's like, well, what can I do to fix my diabetes or to cure my diabetes? Oh, you can't cure diabetes. You need to come back for your, you know, actos or whatever it is I'm going to prescribe. And, you know, I think that's changing. I think there are more and more physicians that are actually saying, no, we can reverse. Like my job is to help you reverse this condition that you have, but it's based on the way of life, right? It's based on your lifestyle and we can begin to tweak that and we can put a continuous glucose monitor on you and we can, you know, give you all kinds of cool tools to help you with optimizing your ability to become metabolically flexible and metabolically adaptive so you can actually start burning your own fat and so on and so forth, not be so glucose dependent. And let me help show you that you have the power to do this. Let me not stand in your way of claiming your own power. You know, So again, there's, there's 10 of these uh, things that both were, were crises for me, waking up to their presence in the healthcare system in an in, ingrained entrenched manner and then using cloud medical as a vehicle in which to address each one of those so when we talk about that interior thing like this is addressing the discomfort right it was very uncomfortable for me as a doctor mm. becoming aware of holy shit like of all the great things we do there's this dark side and not ignoring it not denying it but actually facing it like with a very clear gaze, like with a firm gaze and saying, okay, what are we going to do about this now? And doing something about it. So, so it's an honor for me to be able to transmute some of that stuff and translate that into, into again, not a bunch of woo-woo theorizing, but pragmatic practical steps. So, so that's, you know, those are some of the uh, aspects of the praxis, the practical, shall we say, meaningful reform of the healthcare system that I think, again, we don't need to build anything new. We have everything. We don't need any more information. We just need to do a better job of constellating the stars that are already shining. Briefly, salutogenesis, going back to that, has to do with our journey to understanding more deeply and more honestly what can support our health and our well-being and our healing. And then eudaimonics is really what I see to be the evolution of our economics. I think our economics need to evolve towards a more eudaimonic system. Can you define that, Dave? Yeah, it basically means, it's an old Greek word that, that basically means the way in which, like one way to think about it is, it's a way of exchanging value between two human beings or groups or entities or companies or organizations where both of them have an up-leveling of their mm. health and well-being, right? And so it's a fascinating word that actually means good demon, right? So it's, it's like think huh. about it as a good spirit that is unleashed or supported through the exchange between uh, human beings. So we want to unleash so the good spirit. Than, more than just profit, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> more than just me or more than just training because capitalism purports, you know, I studied economics as a right. minor and the whole idea underlying capitalism is I, I'm going to give you eggs. You're going to give me bread. Right. We're both going to be better off. Right. But eudaimonics sounds like 
there would still be something missing. Like it's not, that's not a eudaimonic exchange unless there's some other spirit, like element of spirit in that exchange. Is, is that, I think that's exactly that right. right. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think the eudaimonic exchange goes beyond the transactional. Right. And I actually think that in many ways, the, the example that you gave, like, could be a very eudaimonic one, right? It sounds so, nice, actually, yeah. when I said it. <laughs> we got eggs. Our chickens are making yeah, like, I mean, we're getting like five a day now. So, you super know, jealous. I'd love to drop some off. Love it. Yeah, we should, we should make that happen. So, yes, it is aware of, I would say, the upstream and the downstream consequences of that exchange, right? It's very, very aware of, what went into those eggs? What did those chickens eat? How were those chickens treated? You know, and and mm-hmm. the milk, same thing with the milk, or the same thing with the shirt or the sweater or the toothpaste that I use. Was this toothpaste made in such a way that it's going to up-level your health? The packaging, the containers, uh, the workers involved and employed in the production of this product upstream and downstream, excuse me, the consequences of all of that ultimately is a net positive for for us, right? So I think this is the way that we need to think about our economic system. And so I will say that it's my very deep belief that when we think about healthcare system reform, whatever ideas we come up with need to be contextualized in the broader question of what are the big challenges that we're facing on a species level, on a global level, as a planetary civilization, right? And so when we think about optimizing or improving our system or the educational system or the media or the the political system or, or economics or any of that, if it's not grounded in the context of these greater challenges that we're facing, right? we're probably not going to come up with viable, meaningful solutions. So, yeah. Some words that I like are, is it conducive to human flourishing? A hundred percent. For anything that we're doing, is it conducive to human flourishing? If not, well, then we've got a big problem. That's right. That's right. I think that is a brilliant compass, North star, litmus test, acid test for any product, any service, any design, any any new system that we build should resonate with that. The answer to your question in the affirmative, hopefully, is this in line with human flourishing? You know, I would add that it should also resonate with the frequency of salutogenesis. Is this supporting our health and well-being in a really deep level? And if the answer is, right. well, yeah, kind of, sort of. And it's like, well, no, let's go back to the drawing boards. You know, and again, I understand the utopian objection to this, but I can tell you that there, you know, there are people in our sphere that are doing this in a very, very practical and pragmatic way. And the toothpaste example is a great one. You know, my friends at Akamai Basics, they have put an unbelievable amount of thought into creating personal care products that are salutogenic and eudaimonic upstream to where they're first sourced 
and how they're produced and who does that to the packaging, to the waste, to everything along the way. Never mind that everything in the damn toothpaste is good for you, right? None of it is mm -hmm. made with any of the many chemicals that, as you well know, our personal care products out there in our grocery stores and stuff are full of these parabens and phthalates that are endocrine disruptors and are damaging to our bodies and our ecosystems in, in abundant ways. So there are products that are being created and designed and produced now that very much uphold the standard that, that you mentioned. And I think it's time that we begin to, first of all, be aware of them. Like we need to begin to celebrate those pioneers in all of these different realms of our eudaimonic economic system and say, Hey, thank you. And hell yeah, I'm going to support you. And hell I'm yeah, gonna I'm going to tell toothpaste. my friends, I'm going to buy your yeah. toothpaste. Right. So yep. I, I think that's one of the important aspects of this is this idea that first of all, I don't know the answer, but we know as a collective, not a bunch of group think nonsense, but as collective intelligence together, we'll pool all resources and we'll come up with the best way so that our way of life actually begins to address all of those different epidemics and pandemics we were talking about earlier, right? But we obviously can't do that alone. We have to do that in connection to one another. And I love the term constellate. You know, again, I think everything that is necessary to, to build this world that our hearts know is possible, as Charles Eisenstein says, is already there and they're already shining bright, but they're a little bit lonely, right? It's time for us to constellate those stars that are shining and say, hey, you're part of this bigger version of the kind of world that we want to see be born. And we want to actually be participants in supporting and nurturing. So that's why you know i've lived in eight different countries in my life and i've never felt more grateful i've never felt more privileged and more blessed to live in a place like this here in boulder county where you know many people get this like um many people are in some way involved with the conversation that we're having they not only say yeah man i i, I absolutely hear you and agree with some of this stuff, but I'm in participation with it in my own way. And so it's a, so beautiful. And there's many communities like this, obviously not just in Boulder, all around the world, but it's just cool to be here, man. Agreed. <laughs> I want to talk about Black Lives Matter and, and systemic racism and how that fits into this model of a, a more eudaimonic economic system. Yeah. Because it seems like we're just coming out of denial. Like yeah. those of us, white people, let's just say, or there's an opportunity to come out of denial about how the system that we've built treats us differently than people who have different color skin. And I know for me, it's been, it's been really positive to start to ask myself the questions like, what am I going to do about this? Because if I don't do something, then I'm part of the problem. I'm just curious, how does that fit in with with this conversation about healthcare connecting to our bodies and nature and each other and our essence and constellating. Yeah. You know, I guess I'll preface it by saying that I'm, you know, I'm a white guy. I'm a middle-aged white man. And so I really feel that, you know, it's not really my question to answer that. 
I mean, I, I will try to do that in a way to honor the, the space because I think it's a conversation that we, we just very, very much need to have, but we need to step into that conversation with a hell of a lot more listening than speaking. Right. And so I've been tuning in a lot. I've been listening a lot. I've been hearing the voices and, um, what I think is that we have, you know, these four centuries of trauma that have gone until very, very recently completely unacknowledged, completely unacknowledged, right? And that it's like, well, yeah, you know, that was back then, but come on, let's, let's all get over it and kind of get with the program and embrace the equality that modern life affords us, right? Man, that's not going to work. It's not going to do it. It's not going to do it. And so, you know, I think that that applies to Black Lives Matter. I think that applies probably, you know, I don't know if there's any any, uh, way to say which is worse, you know, but it certainly applies to the genocide and the Holocaust of the Native American indigenous tribes, right? I can tell you that from the perspective of healing, I have a patient whose story is, is one of the most amazing stories of healing. And, and this doesn't come from Black Lives Matter. This comes from matters. This comes from the Native Americans, but he was the fourth or fifth generation descendant of the military commander who led the massacre of wounded knee. And as a young boy, this was a source of family pride, this legacy, because all of his male relatives were graduates of West Point and military people. And even as a young child, my patient, his name is Bradley, felt devastated by this, brokenhearted by this. He said, this is terrible. This is wrong. This is horrible. And throughout his life, the weight and the burden of that legacy became heavier and heavier for him to bear. And while he was, I believe, in his 60s, he finally decided he can't he can't live with us anymore. And so he drove out to the, I believe, the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, near where this massacre occurred over 100 years ago. And he presented himself and he said, I'm here. I know I can't ask for your forgiveness, but I'm here to atone and to say that I'm sorry in any way that it is possible to do, in any way that it is possible on behalf of my relatives to give you this communication of sorrow and heartbreak and regret for me from the depth of my soul. And they said, we know who you are. You're not welcome here. If you don't leave right away, we can't guarantee your safety. And he said, I know. And he literally laid down on the ground with his hands clasped in front of him. And he said, there's nowhere for me to go. And the story is, is worth reading about because through the process of total grace and total humility over the period of several days and several weeks, And now he's been back many, many times. 
you know, the, the outcome has been, look, we can't forgive your ancestors and we can't forgive you, but you didn't do this, but we embrace you as a brother. And so now he is felt by the elders of this tribe to be a brother to them. And he has enabled or allowed or opened up the possibility of some kind of beginning toward a healing process, right? That is only just beginning. And I don't claim to understand it. I don't claim to know what it's going to take to get to whatever type of uh, place we need to get as a culture, both from the perspective of uh, the Native Americans, the African Americans, Blacks, and many of the other minorities that were you know, persecuted and have had immense amounts of trauma handed down to them over the years and over the centuries. But I think the path that Bradley has shown, you know, this ability to say, look, I don't know what to do. I literally don't know what to do, but I'm here and I will, I will bear witness and I will cry with you and I will hold your hand and, and maybe some way we can find a path together because we need to do it together, right? We, we can't expect just a certain group of people that were persecuted over the years to do their healing on their own. I think it has to involve a collective experience. And again, the work of Thomas Hubel, I think is, is really pointing us the way. So you can see, <laughs> you can hear me stumbling for words. I, I honestly don't know well, but, but I believe that again, with a lot of listening and a lot of humility and a lot of patience. And rather than jumping to conclusions and saying, Oh, I, I know how to do this. We, we do it with a deep sense of openness to what unfolds between us in, in those conversations. So, yeah. Oh, chills from that story. Yeah. What I got from that story is that if we don't have those conversations, then healing complete healing is not possible. Like it's actually, we've got to step out of denial and then feel our feelings about what our ancestors have done and go and atone in order for us to be whole. Yeah. I, I think that's right. I think, you know, we have to acknowledge those, those wounds ourselves, you know, and on behalf of our ancestors. And I think we have to be able to bear witness to those stages of grief, both within our own bodies and in our own hearts, and also in our black brothers and sisters and our Native American brothers and sisters, and recognize that there's going to be, you know, as a part of that, there's going to be a lot of anger. And mm -hmm. one way to approach that anger is to sort of dig your heels in and resist it. And another way is to, to approach it with a soft heart. You know, and to recognize to a certain degree its necessity, right? And, and I'm not in any way, shape or form condoning or suggesting that there's, that that should be violent in nature. 
But man, you know, we have to recognize that it's going to come through in lots of different ways and be open to hearing that. So it's a big question, man. Yeah, I've accepted that I'm going to screw it up and that if, if I'm in, you know, because I think that's what was keeping me from walking into the conversation before is like, I am going to screw this up and, and fall flat on my face. And now I've just accepted, okay, that's part of the process of learning how to be in this conversation. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you've seen this remarkable movie that I think everybody should watch called Just Mercy. It's, no. um, it's, it's the life story of Brian Stevenson, who is a, a defense attorney for people on death row, particularly down in Alabama, Montgomery, Alabama. And, you know, there was a profound teaching about a type of lie that I felt in the medical profession. And, it, you know, he speaks to it tangentially from the legal profession as well. And I recognize it's, it's, similarity. And the lie is that we're taught in medical school that if you're if you get too close to or too invested in the lives of your patients, uh, that's a bad thing. First of all, if they end up dying, you're going to suffer. And second of all, that connection, if it's too strong, will cloud your objectivity and your judgment. And it very much this is part of the medical culture. And, and yeah. Brian Stevenson points out that it's very much part of the, the legal culture as well. And he's like, no, no. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and, and for me, it's very much been the same thing. And that's been, you know, the basis of my practice is fundamentally the human connection. And that human connection is a, deep, deep bond. It's the opposite of that transactional relationship. It is a connection that's based on seeing the divine being in front of you, right? Connecting to that divine being in front of you. And and there's simply no other way to describe that other than with the word love. It is a love. And it was so beautiful for me to see and to hear Brian Stevenson's approach to his clients from that perspective of, I see them as a brother. I see them as my family. I love them. I care for them. And my caring goes from the depths and the core of my soul, right? And I think that's how we get the soul of medicine back, the soul of healing back, the soul of healthcare back, is that we say, look, yes, I think that there is a pitfall and there is a potential of having a relationship that is not appropriate therapeutically, right? Um, and we have to be careful about distinguishing those boundaries. But to say that we need to keep one another at arm's length is profoundly not the right way. It's, in fact, what is perpetuating so much of the disillusionment on behalf of many of the healthcare providers in this country. And so I bring this theme back to your question about. Black Lives Matter. I think that's the theme, man. Like, we're going to get it wrong. We're going to say things that don't come out quite right. Maybe they don't have the right tone or the right pitch to them. And I apologize in advance for that. But if we see one another, right, 
as divine beings that we're open to having a relationship that is deeply anchored in the intentionality of love, I think eventually we're going to get it right. You know, just bringing this full circle back to psychedelic healing. So I was reading in Stan Groff's uh, Way of the Psychonaut in, in you know, 40 years of LSD psychotherapy. And he's talking about there were these therapists, I think they may have been from Australia, that would, in the psychedelic experience, hold their clients as the clients were re-experiencing trauma and things were coming up. They were crying. They needed human touch and they would hold their clients. And and this was very controversial mm. in the psychotherapy and psychiatry community that yeah. therapists would step in and provide the comfort and care and support that these people were needing when they were in their most vulnerable position, digging through their pain. And for me, it's like freaking obvious that yes, hold people when they're, when they need to be held and connect with them and love them. And that's where the healing happens. It, most healing seems to me to be relational. Like we get wounded in relationships, so we get healed in relationship. So I'm a, I'm a, just like a heck yes to that, to the, that love is the foundation of, of all healing. And if we can animate that and bring it into, into the psychedelic world, into the, into the political world, economic world, like there's a, it simplifies everything. Yeah. Amen, brother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I completely and totally agree. It's been one of the hardest things about this damn virus, you know, is you can't right. hug people as much. You can't hold people as yeah, much. Totally. But I completely resonate with that. It's also utterly not mainstream and not the norm, you know, from, yeah, you're right. You know, it's, it's been the source of tension and conflict and should we, shouldn't we, is it okay to hug people or patients and so forth? You know, and even on a deeper level, I think this whole cerebral aspect of the quote unquote healthcare encounter, right? Where it's about figuring out the protocol and the pathway and the, and the, the diagnostic and the therapeutic regimen and at an arm's length. In contrast to, there is a, an organization that goes to Burning Man every year. And I, f I forget their name, but you, you may know. Zendo. 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 It's Zendo. Yeah. It's Zendo. And what Zendo does, as you know, is, you know, there is none of that. There's none of the ordering and the prescribing. It is merely creating a container of safety, creating a container of relationship, creating a container of love and connection. Be here, brother. Be here, sister. I will sit with you. I will make sure you're okay. I will make sure nothing bad happens. And I am just that presence for you to, you know, hold space for you. And I think, like, you know, some of the most poignant, the most absolutely beautiful, the most extraordinary healing encounters that I've ever had as a, as a physician has been much less of that cerebral stuff and much more of that Zendo stuff, right? Mm. That's that exquisite place where, again, we're not taking people's power away. We're reminding them that they have the power to heal themselves on so many profound levels, right? 
And of course, there's a time and a place for the meds and the drugs and all that's great. We don't have to throw that all away. But just to be humble and to honor the importance of that other more feminine aspect of healing, right? The presence aspect of healing. So, so beautiful, man. Yeah. Uh, well, unfortunately, we're out of time. But this has been wonderful, Dave. And I just want to acknowledge you for the work that you do and the the light that you are in the constellation that we can look towards and and learn about what a more sane and loving healthcare system might look like. So really appreciate you. And how can people find you and, and cloud? Yeah, we're on a, uh, it's just cloudmedical.io. And, you know, the coolest thing that we're launching this summer is we're actually creating an alternative to the healthcare exchange, which is based on that pathogenic model. And we're launching something called Ravel.health, where people can go and find practices like cloud that are direct primary care oriented, that also have a major medical component that is much more economical and, and less expensive, but then has a cadre of other health fields, integrative health fields, body work, some of the psychological and psychotherapeutic work nutrition, acupuncture, so on and so forth, that they can curate their own optimal healthcare system and still have it be much lower in cost than, you know, the, the stuff that is available on the current Colorado Healthcare Exchange. So that concept is called Ravel, R-A-V-E-L dot health. And um, yeah, hopefully by the time this podcast goes live, that will be up and running. Very cool. Yeah, I was on the website earlier. It looks it looks really awesome. And that so that's Colorado wide right now. It's Colorado wide. And mm-hmm. yeah, and then I guess who knows going forward. Yeah. No, we have big goals and big dreams for that project for sure. So well yeah. Well thanks so much for having me on, man. It's been it's been great connecting with you and sharing. I totally wish you all the best, my friend. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Right back at you. Hey friends, it's Will again. Just a few more things before I sign off. I hope you enjoyed this episode. The first one is that this episode is brought to you by Fundraising Mastery, which is the fundraising accelerator that I launched earlier this year to help mission-driven founders raise seed capital. So if you're creating something uh, or you know anybody in your network who's creating something impactful and they're looking for help getting the financing that's going to take their venture to the next level, please go to foundersgetfunded.com. And uh, I'd love to meet them. We're currently enrolling our next cohort and we've set a goal of 50% founders of color in that cohort. So if you can share that or help us find those people that are going to be the right match for this cohort, much appreciated. And then the last thing is we just broke 10 reviews on Apple Podcasts. So thank you if you left a review. But to anybody else listening, if you haven't left a review yet, they really do help us get more visibility in the podcast directory. They help more people find these conversations, learn about psychedelic healing, social impact business, uh, and all the stuff that we talk about on the show. So it's my humble request that if you enjoy the show, please click on there. And uh, even if you don't have an, an iPhone, I think you can still leave a review through the web. But just search for the podcast, click through and leave a review. Let us know what you think. 
and it'll help more people find this community. Uh, we also have a Facebook page called Evolving Earth, and uh, it's private, I believe, right now, but you can search for it and find it. We'll put it in the show notes, and I would love to have you as a member of that community there. I'm trying to bring us together, all of us that are interested in the future and how we're going to create one that, that works for everybody. So sending you big love from Boulder, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>